I have a story of some serious drama and intrigue for you, Greg. Yes. The gossip is very hot with this one. And that's a pun, which I'm just realizing you can't get yet because you don't know what we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) It's about to be like, hang on, you're doing puns? I'm going to have to do the microbiology if you're doing the puns. Poorly planned on my part because this story centers around what is widely considered the most urgent and the most important existential threat facing humanity today, which is... Climate change? Yes, sir. Ding, ding, ding. That is correct. So now, hot, you see. Oh. Global warming. Sorry, hang on. Rewind. (laughs) And today's story is all about how we know what climate change is and how it works and who truly discovered it. Mm, An important one. Uh, Very. Because the scientist who very first understood this concept and very presciently predicted that it would be incredibly important for our future was completely forgotten by history until about five years ago. No, that reason. Yes. Wow. It is, like I said, a story filled with drama and intrigue. It actually spans from thousands of years ago to right now, today, this very second, and it tells the stunning and, I hope, inspiring and encouraging true story of the hidden voice or voices behind our modern understanding of our changing climate. But first, welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant discoveries, ideas, and people. I'm Greg Foote. And I'm Marin Hunsberger. And each episode, me and Greg take turns telling each other the story. And this week, I'm the storyteller, which means that Greg... I don't know what's coming up. Well, you're about to find out. I think it's very easy for us to think of climate change as a very modern thing because people have this understanding that we start to be more aware of like the environment and the climate and activism like in the 50s to the 60s to the 70s right that's kind of our common understanding of that movement but actually the concept of climate change was first put forward in the 1830s which is just at the end of the industrial revolution yes i think yes which is when you know things are certain carbon being chucked up in the atmosphere. Coal is a big deal. We're starting to have factories, electrification, uh, trains, and we'll see where this gets us at this time and how changing climate and environmentalism mesh and don't, especially in this time, we'll get there. I feel that people often get confused between climate change and global warming and various things. And I think, too, it's such a big topic and so many things are encompassed within it that it can be very difficult to talk about. So I contacted an expert just to help me clarify this. Her name is Professor Diana Liverman at the University of Arizona, and she specializes in this area. And she often works with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC. Ah, You may have heard of them. Mm. They're the preeminent global body. It's part of the United Nations, and they study these issues issues and they advise governments on what to do in reaction to or about climate change. So the way I usually explain climate change is that, first of all, climate is different from weather. Climate is the average of weather over very long periods. So climate change is about a change in the average over a period of years. And what's happening with the human impact on the climate is that Over the last like 200 years, but particularly in the last 50 years, we've been putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And those greenhouse gases trap energy that we have uh, received from the sun. And the more greenhouse gases you have, the more energy you trap. 
and therefore the temperature has been warming up. And for a number of years, this was sort of a scientific assessment in that we understood the physics, we knew the greenhouse gases were there, and we knew they were likely to result in warming. But now, if we look back over the last 20 years, we've actually measured that warming, we've observed it. So it's not a theoretical thing anymore. So what Diana is talking about is this gradual increase in average temperature, which we term global warming. And we don't typically call it that anymore because we do have periods of some years where things get cooler, but on average, that temperature over time is rising. And the effects of that average rise in temperature are so much bigger than just warming, right? We get more extreme weather, we get loss of biodiversity, we have all of these other effects, and that's what we term climate change. So global warming, when we talk about it, is this average rise in temperature. And I'm going to show you a picture, Greg, because I think this does more than any of my words ever could. Right. So I'm looking at a, a graph uh, and along the bottom, like horizontal, the x-axis, I've got time. And on the y-axis, the vertical bit, I've got carbon dioxide level in parts per million. And what you can see is that kind of through time, the wiggly line goes up and then down and then up and then down and then up and down, up and down. But then once it hits just before 1950s or about 1900s-ish, it just goes woof totally off the frickin' scale. We sometimes call that the hockey stick. That's the part of the graph that just gets way higher, way faster than we've ever seen before. And that up and down, that regular heating and cooling, heating and cooling, that's quite often what the denialists kind of go, hey, look, see, it's happened before, but it's like, well, hang on, once you hit that point, it shoots. Up. Absolutely. It's unprecedented. And this natural cycling of the climate throughout Earth's history has been caused by all kinds of things. Maybe the Earth gets a little further from the sun. Maybe we have a volcano explosion and then we have an ice age. But this, this unprecedented meteoric rise in parts per million can only be due to this other part of the puzzle that we know of, which is human anthropogenic release of fossil fuels into the air. Where does the data come from to plot something like yes, this? Yes, this is another great question, because I think this also plays into the idea that, like, how do we know any of this is real? And it's actually from the fossil record, the way that animals formed their shells or samples that we can take from the depths of the ocean sediments or in glaciers can give us samples way, way, way back hundreds of thousands of years that tell us what the carbon content of the atmosphere was like at those times. So essentially, we have very robust data for our current perspective on how the climate has changed up until now. But from today, I actually need to rewind us back to the mid 1800s. Oh, there I was hoping we were going to go back and like chat to an ancient human, like one of our ancestors. I'll touch on that a little bit more. But science is very different in the 1800s from what you and I understand it to be today. They didn't really have that many professional scientists who were paid to do science. So that was Alice Bell. She's the author of a forthcoming book on this whole topic. And at this point, we're not even regularly calling scientists scientists. That was William Hewell came up with scientist early 1830s. Jeez, right. Yeah, man, you pulled that one out of the recesses. That's really uh, yeah. impressive. And at this point, it's still really a rich man's game, right? You have to have the time and the money and sort of like the leisure 
to be able to do experiments and ask these questions and get the equipment. And one of the things that's going on in this area of science at this time that's super sort of popular and fashionable is the exploration of the atmosphere. Mm. In the 18th century, people started pulling different airs out of the air and they discovered things like oxygen, which burnt stuff really well. And they noticed that oxygen was one thing and carbon dioxide was another and humans breathed in oxygen and breathed out carbon dioxide and plants did the opposite. And they also started pulling out other things like nitrous oxide and realized you can get high on it. One of our season one episodes was about that, phlogiston. And like the story of oxygen? Yes, exactly. So we've got Carl Schiele and this yeah. discovery of like who really inf- like discovered oxygen? We don't know. Go back and listen to that one if you haven't before. It's a really good one. I highly recommend it. Not just because I wrote it. Yeah. So we're looking into what exactly air is, what it's made up of and what that means for us. And someone discovers global warming. And I'm going to tell you the story. And then I'm going to tell you the story. Yeah. <laughs> Our main man here in this top-level story is John Tyndall. Have you heard of John Tyndall? I have heard of John Tyndall. I feel like, yeah, um, my brain is gonna. The name sounds familiar. It's on the tip of your brain, and you're gonna you're the gonna realize exactly where it is. In I'm a probably second. dusting off my brain so far <laughs> in this episode. He was a professional scientist, but he was quite unusual in that respect. He came from a relatively humble background and he really had to fight and network and charm his way into having one of the very few jobs where you were paid to be a scientist. Otherwise, it was people like Charles Darwin who were rich enough to be able to do it in their spare time. So John Tyndall is Irish originally, but he moves to England and he works his way up from these rather humble beginnings to become a fellow and a professor at the Royal Society, Mm -hmm. which is very prestigious (laughs) and full of gentlemen. And he does all kinds of interesting work. He is all over the map. Like he works with Louis Pasteur to discover a bacterial sterilization technique. Mm -hmm. And this is the one you might recognize. He's the first to explain why the sky is blue. Oh, that's it. <laughs> a classic. Does he also like climb? Like yes, walk? Yes, he's one of the first mountaineers to climb the Matterhorn, which it, for those who don't know is one of the highest mountains in the Alps. And a ride at Disneyland. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> so he's a really impressive guy. He's super ambitious. And in the 1850s, he performs a series of experiments where he studies the effect of thermal radiation on jars full of water vapor and other gases that he's pulled out, that he's separated from just regular room air. And this is the time where we're starting to pick apart the gas makeup of the atmosphere. So he's testing how these different gases may absorb and retain heat. So from 1859 to 1861, he's doing these experiments and publishing several papers on his findings. And one of them has a sentence that sums it up pretty nicely. I'm going to have you read it. Okay. This aqueous vapour is a blanket more necessary to the vegetable life of England than clothing is to man. I love the way he puts that. It's hysterical. So he's really trying to describe this idea that our atmosphere retains heat from the sun. Yeah, I love that. I would still prefer to wear clothing than a blanket of aqueous vapor. <laughs> and mind. A- actually, this is hysterical because when I was talking to Alice, she was saying that a lot of climate scientists, we use the term greenhouse gases just because it's really evocative and mm. it's like easily explains the effect. But the first person to describe like the warming effect of a greenhouse gas on the earth called it a warm, wet blanket. Hmm. And apparently that's more accurate. Huh. So Tyndall is the first one who really explains this effect of global warming, this insulation of the planet. But we're not yet at an understanding of climate change, this understanding that humans are contributing, that the temperature is rising, and that this is an issue, right? Yeah, so that's he's the just looking here. at a bunch of jars of gases and what 
heat from the sun does to them. Exactly. You know, he's not aware of the hour effect and increased carbon levels and all that sort That's of That's not a consideration yet. And so he's considered the founder of global warming, not necessarily climate change. Although there is a climate change research center named after him now. Oh, just to confuse it. Of course. It's Don Tyndall, a center for climate change research named after him, founded in 2000, still a huge major player in the field today because from our modern perspective, we thought he was where this started. I hope they have a wall in there that rather than saying greenhouse effect, it says uh, warm, wet blanket It's effect. the more correct term, Greg. <laughs> so that's our understanding of the story until 2011, when it was uncovered that somebody else did those experiments first. That's bonkers that that's hundreds of years later. Over almost. 150. Wow. A century and a half, Greg. And you know what her name was? Ah. Eunice Foote. Foot, great name! <laughs> Clearly great taste in surnames. Yes! It's actually spelled with an E, though. Ah, uh, no relative there. Yeah, yeah, mismatched feet. Oh. But we're going to dive into all of this. Step into this. <sighs> right after a short break. So we're back. This is Surprisingly Brilliant. And we've just covered that John Tyndall has published his work in 1861 on this idea that the atmosphere is a warm, wet blanket, keeping the keeping the globe warm, global warming, as it were. And it isn't until almost a century and a half later that someone finds another layer to this story of what really happened. Eunice. Eunice. So in 2011, Ray Sorensen is a retired oil executive, and he happens to be interested in the history of climate change research and just happens to be looking through a copy of the 1857 edition of a magazine called Annual Scientific Discovery. It's a gripping read. A, gri a gripping read. I love what Ray's doing in his spare time as a retiree. And he happens upon a mention of a work by a woman named Eunice Foote, and he realizes she's actually the first one to make the connection between carbon dioxide and global warming. And he writes a paper on it and her story kind of explodes. Like he is the one who brings her story out into the open. And then in 2015, everyone picks it up. Every news outlet from here to Shanghai is talking about Eunice Foote. So she was writing about the similar ideas as John Tyndall, but like three or four years before and essentially was published as well. Exactly. And well, her story is fraught and she's a really interesting character so let me tell you how it all went down she's born in 1819 and funnily enough this is just a side note fun fact her father's name is isaac newton so what he's not the isaac newton he was a century before and on a different continent but his name is isaac newton so she's cool. born eunice newton and her parents by all accounts are relatively progressive they sent her off to this college called the troy female seminary which is essentially like a ladies institution of secondary education and at the time like most ladies are being sent off to college to like learn how to embroider and learn how to educate yeah exactly conversational french but troy female seminary is teaching mathematics and science and literature. Right. It's really awesome. And Eunice is really getting her hands dirty, elbows deep in scientific knowledge because she was able to study there. And then in her 20s, she marries her husband, Elisha Foote, and she becomes Eunice Foote. And this is a really important part of her story. I talked to John Perlin, and he's an author and a visiting scholar at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And he's writing a book all about Eunice, so he's the perfect person to talk to. And here's what he has to say about Eunice and Elisha. With her 
husband. They were a very unusual couple in that they were both educated in progressive schools back in the 19th century that taught that men and women should be partners and equals rather than women should be um, the satellites or the servants of men. I love that phrase, satellites. I know. You shouldn't just have to, um, yeah, orbit around the man. Eunice is not going to be a satellite. So they're very much so partners, intellectually speaking. Now, they are still upper class people. Like, they're wealthy. So they have the time and the money to be like fooling around with all the science stuff that's not available to people of the lower classes. Elisha is a lawyer and a judge. They actually go on to invent and patent several inventions together. Oh, yeah. Well, which I, well I'll get to it. Okay. I'll get to it. It's really cool. But importantly, in 1856, she is conducting a series of experiments with different gases in different jars, basically just kind of like leaving them out on her windowsill and in the sun, seeing what happens. Sounds a bit like Pasteur. It's kind of what they were doing in that like 19th century. Just leave it. Leave it out. See what happens. Record it. Publish it. And she's Science. <laughs> Science. That's how it works, folks. So she's finding that water vapor absorbs and retains heat from the sun, that carbon dioxide absorbs and retains heat from the sun. And we don't have a copy of the paper, and I'll tell you why in a second, but we know what it's called. It's called circumstances affecting the heat of the sun's rays. And I'm going to have you read this line from a report on the presentation of her conclusions. <laughs> right, so not her actual paper herself, but <laughs> nope. what someone wrote about the presentation of a paper. Okay, here we go. An atmosphere of that gas would give to our Earth a much higher temperature. And if there once was, as some suppose, a larger proportion of that gas in the air, an increased temperature must have accompanied it, both from the nature of the gas and the increased density of the atmosphere. Do you see what's happening here? She's projecting backwards. Like we, we're getting this budding understanding of the fossil record. Some people are already putting forward this idea that we may have had climate change in the past. And she's the one who's putting together the pieces. So she's saying if there was more CO2 in the atmosphere at some point in the past, or indeed the future, that will lead to a higher temperature, both because of the nature of the carbon dioxide and because the atmosphere would get a bit denser. Yeah, dude. So you can see how her work here is fundamentally different from Tyndall's. Well, it feels like it's kind of Tyndall on steroids. It's like <laughs> Tyndall did the jars thing and reported what happened, but she's kind of adding an extra causal layer to it. Big brain mode, my dude. So the reason why we don't have an actual copy of her paper is that Elisha, her husband, and Eunice both submit papers to the 10th <gasps> annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS. As, as competitors? No, I don't think so, not as competitors. They're going together, kind of as partners as per usual. And women could be members of AAAS. Technically, at that time, they could present their work. For some reason, Eunice isn't a member, and she doesn't present her work. She may have been at the conference, we don't know, but she doesn't present her work herself as is customary. It's instead presented by the head of the Smithsonian Institution, and his name is Joseph Henry. And this is really interesting because the instinct, right, is to think, oh, she wasn't going to present because she's a woman. But then they have this really important guy present it, and he says how important this work is. So that thing I read, which is a report on the presentation of the work, was a report on the presentation of her work, and that presentation was done not by her but by this guy exactly and here's what alice has to say about this i sometimes argued that it was to do with snobbishness that a woman wouldn't be allowed to speak science and it was about policing whose voice what was the voice of american science was it very much a male white rich voice 
And there's lots of reasons why you might argue that that was the case. But it could be actually just that people actually really liked the paper, that people saw it and they were really inspired by it. And they said, this needs very high status. And so I mean, this is also coming from a sexist position that it's like, well, to have high status, it must be read by a man. But that was maybe why it was picked out. So it could be more complicated. But regardless of which way you tell it or interpret it, it's still very problematic. The choice is still that the man is the one that's going to present this. Totally. And it's. I think this is be- kind of beautifully ironic because Joseph Henry is a really important dude at the time. And before reading out Eunice's work, he introduces her findings by stating, Science is of no country and of no sex. The sphere of women embraces not only the beautiful and the useful, but the true and here is Eunice to present it. Oh, no, no, sorry. Actually, no, jokes, no. No, I'm going to. That's going to be me. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. And then in regards to the only lingering record that we have about her research, here's John. And to give you an idea of the times, there were two reports from newspapers about Eunice Foote's work. One was like appalled that Joseph Henry required the newspaper people to call Eunice Foote by her given name rather than her, you know, Mrs. Elisha Foote. So you had this one guy who was really, 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 you know, pissed that he was being forced to recognize her as a human being. But the other reporter stated that Joseph Henry not only thought that her experiments were interesting, but also that they should be pursued by other investigators uh, because of the value of what she demonstrated. Hi, hi, hi. It's amazing we rediscovered it at all. Well, yeah. Good old Roy just happened to be reading it. I know. Thank goodness for Roy, right? So for whatever reason, after Joseph Henry presents her work at the meeting, she doesn't go on to publish the paper in the AAAS journal. And this is where the drama starts. So Eunice is in New York with her husband. She's doing all kinds of cool science. She's an inventor. She's a mom to two young daughters. She's chilling with her husband, Elisha. And John Tyndall is over in England, climbing up the ranks of the Royal Society, becoming an important science dude on his own, very concerned with his image, with his Mm -hmm. status. And Joseph Henry, head of the Smithsonian. He later had a very long correspondence with John Tyndall, and he never mentioned it. And it seems odd that you're writing to this scientist on the other side of the world about his great work. You're talking about the great work that's happening in your country. And it's weird that you wouldn't have mentioned it. Uh, and it's, he must have forgotten it. Especially after he's presented it. He presented and it. And kind of applauded it, you and know. And said it was cool and like needed more work, more follow-on work. Why wouldn't he be talking to Tyndall about this? And that's not all. There's also this little morsel of information because that write-up of Eunice's findings, so that, you know, newspaper report, actually becomes available alongside all of the other materials from the conference. And Eunice's husband, Elisha, had a paper actually published in that conference and in that journal. And his article is selected for republishing in a European magazine called the Philosophical Magazine. And here's Alice. The editor of the Philosophical Magazine, who chose Eunice's husband's paper, must have seen Eunice's paper. This one that we now look back in is like, this important document from history. He must have seen it and just glanced over it and decided it was lesser and the, who published the, the husband's paper instead. And we don't know who that editor is. We know there's a one in five chance that it was actually John Tyndall himself. No way. Yeah. <gasps> okay, and what we don't know is if Joseph Henry did actually tell John Tyndall about it, kind of like off the record, so to speak, and therefore... 
they were aware of it? And was John Tyndall aware of it then if he'd seen that paper? This is the great mystery. We don't know. We don't have any of these answers. Did John know? Did Joseph Henry tell him? Did they all just steal credit for Eunice's work? Did she care? We have no idea. But if that's the case, why didn't John Tyndall, when publishing in 1861 about his jars, why didn't he also talk about the past and the future? Great question. These are great questions, Greg, and my experts are totally divided on it. Alice is not convinced that John Tyndall knew. John Perlin is totally convinced that John Tyndall (laughs) knew. And he's, because he's researching Eunice's story, told me many stories about John Tyndall and his dubious reputation. And there may be a couple of instances where somebody else that John Tyndall was tangentially related to did work first that John later publishes and gets the credit for, including Joseph Henry himself. Joseph Henry discovers that the foghorn works and is good and tells John about it. And then John decides that it's him. I'm just going to take that idea. Thanks, man. Yeah. The head of the Smithsonian. I do want to emphasize that Tyndall's work differs from Eunice's in some important ways too, right? We talk about Eunice having more of this foresight or hindsight projecting into the past and future, but Tyndall's experiments are a little more sophisticated, maybe because of what he has access to in terms of resources. Instead of just using plain old radiation from the sun, he's using a special source of radiation that only investigates infrared radiation, which is actually the important wavelength when we're talking about heat retention. He investigates how the molecules are actually working to retain and move and absorb heat and energy. That does sound quite a lot more than uh, just leaving some jars out, right? Because it's not sunlight anymore, it's specific EM radiation and is not just kind of like looking at what happens to it, he's actually looking at a molecular level. And he invented something called a differential spectrometer, Uh which helped him measure really, really accurately super tiny amounts of absorption. So I don't want to downplay his contributions in any way, but we do have the issue of priority. And if John wanted so badly to be this big, important science guy, that would he actively take some ideas from someone else? And just to round out, Tyndall's sort of presence in this story, there's some evidence to suggest that Tyndall's wife did a significant amount of the legwork in a lot of his experiments, and that he was maybe not the nicest husband in the world. And she was quite a bit younger than he was, and he was a terrible insomniac. And she was preparing a sleeping draft for him, basically a sleeping medication, chloral hydrate, and um, she kills him. What? Accidentally? What? Question mark. What? What That was a sudden curveball. An overdose of sleeping medication. So now John Tyndall's dead due to his wife's sleeping Quote unquote drink. mishap. Wow. There's actually a really melodramatic ending to this as well, where he's like lying in bed, knows he's going to die of an overdose from this sleeping medication. And he says to his wife, Louisa, you have killed your beloved John. Not to guilt trip you or anything. <laughs> Not to give you something to like think about for the rest of your life. Extremely dramatic. Wow. Um, So Eunice, meanwhile, is on the other side of the pond. She's in New York. Does she see what John Tyndall is publishing? Like, what does she think and feel about all this? This is the last absolutely wild straw in this whole story, Greg, because we have almost no record of Eunice's personal life. And of course, she's corresponding with people as anyone did, sending letters back and forth, and she continues to correspond with Joseph Henry, the head of the Smithsonian, after all of this goes down. And he keeps their correspondence. He retains it in archives at the Smithsonian until 1867, when you know what happens? 
his wife gives him too much of a sleeping potion. <laughs> There's a fire, Greg. Oh, no. Disaster strikes. The archives are lost. No correspondence with oh. Eunice survives. Oh, no. I had my head in my hands when John Perlin told me that. I was devastated. And those letters are just going to be in that one place, right? Yep. Oish, oish, So Eunice's story was eventually uncovered. We talk about her today. We remember her mostly for this work in global warming and understanding of gases because climate change is so important to us today. But she did so much more than that. All the inventions that she came up with Elisha. And I'm going to tell you about them right after the break. Yes. And we're back. This is surprisingly brilliant. We've just covered the great mystery that surrounds the issue of how Eunice Foote got forgotten by science until so recently. And if John Tyndall did indeed steal her work or if it just happened to happen. And while the global warming story is super interesting, super fun to talk about, Eunice is pretty incredible and should not be diminished to just this one instance of genius. So she goes on to work on a lot of really important things after her work with the gases in the jars. Because now that she has this grounding in atmospheric gases, she goes on to work on the electrical excitation of gases. And in 1857, she publishes this work in the Proceedings of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And here's our Eunice expert, John Perlin. She showed that the different gases, when exposed to the atmosphere, would either absorb or repel electrical charges from the atmosphere. And from that work, the leading um, magazines in America called her an equivalent to Benjamin Franklin. But even more praised was the fact that they compared her to Michael Faraday, who was the uh, foremost scientist of the world at the time. Wow, those are quite some people to be compared to. And maybe that's because we've heard of them and we talk about them a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this therefore suggests that Eunice's accomplishments and achievements and mind and uh, exploratory pathways were just as insightful as these two men that we've heard so much about. And not remembered in the same way. And I think it's super cool to think about this time as like the burgeoning of geological science, of our understanding of the fossil record, of our understanding of atmospheric science as we've seen, but also of meteorological science. How do gases and electricity and temperature and pressure all influence things like weather. Mm. So that's what Eunice is really doing here. The thing I always remember about Benjamin Franklin, uh, a couple of things. One was that whole thing of flying a kite with a key dangling from it during a lightning storm. Right, that that may be true story. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, The other one is National Treasure, the amazing film with Nicolas Cage, uh, where, you know, Benjamin Franklin has, obviously, it's not not factual, Uh, Benjamin Franklin comes up with all these amazing inventions or or whatever it is. And I think he did, like, come up with a whole bunch of stuff, like glasses and yeah, lightning rods and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a really cool inventor. So it's actually an apt comparison because so was Eunice. Eunice was an amazing inventor. She actually invented insoles, basically, like one piece of vulcanized rubber that goes in the bottom of your shoe. She developed the patent for that. She also invented and patented... Which is great for a surname of foot. Oh my God, why didn't I make that connection until now? You're a genius. (laughs) She she also developed a new paper-making machine that provided huge improvements in the strength and smoothness of paper. So also like in the dissemination of knowledge. And she and her husband, Elisha, actually invent a new kind of thermostatically controlled cook stove, which is basically like a stove that reacts to its own heat to control its own heat. And so John describes it as the first smart device for your home. Huh. <laughs> 
I'm just thinking about National Treasure again. <laughs> and I think that Nicolas Cage's character is actually called Benjamin Franklin. Or Ben Gates. Get anyway. real with you, my dude. Haven't seen that movie in a long time. You should. You should watch it tonight. But there is a Benjamin Franklin invention involving glasses with, like, coloured lenses and Listen, stuff. Greg, we are getting off track. Benjamin is cool, but Eunice is cooler. Okay? She's an amazing, amazing woman. Sorry. <laughs> love her work, love her inventions. And I do think that now that we've rediscovered her story, we want to impose this narrative on her story and make her the heroine. But as we know, with most of these episodes, that's never really the case. No, it's a thing that we talk about quite a lot, that when you look back, you connect those dots and you kind of raise that person up as the person who took that first step in this direction. Totally. Um, She was stepping in lots of different directions, right, as well with her inventions and everything else. And we needed her and we needed her insight in her research, but it's not until, you know, 50 years later that we have another researcher who says very explicitly that the greenhouse gases that humans are putting in into the atmosphere will raise the temperature, right? He's the first one who says that. His name is Svante Arrhenius. Svante Arrhenius. He's Swedish. (laughs) Sorry, Svante. (laughs) Sorry, Svante. But, you know, from, from him all the way until now, we have incremental improvements in our understanding of what's happening to our climate. Incremental improvements in our understanding of how we're contributing to it and what we should do about it. Because somebody could argue that John Tyndall did stand on the shoulders of Eunice Foote and didn't credit Eunice Foote for that initial work. But if John Tyndall involved that spectrometer and did all sorts of other things, you know, he did advance it. So it's really hard to kind of peel apart who did what and who built on what and who was the person that kind of pioneered or took the biggest step or whatever. Her science is amazing, but it's really easy to hold her up as the person who discovered climate change. But Alice shifts the perspective on that a little bit. It's often said science is a team sport. And that's a danger of looking at characters like Eunice Foote because it allows us to still maintain this idea of science is being done by great visionaries. And it's really easy to look at her because it looks like she had vision because she said something that's just now seems so important. But I mean, she was kind of a bit lucky in what she said. And our ability to know what we know about climate change has been done by hundreds, thousands of people through generations all over the world, working at so many different disciplines all together. And we wouldn't know what we know if we weren't working together. And it's that process of togetherness that's always gonna be more important than individuals. And individuals are also more than one thing because Eunice wasn't just a scientist. She was also very involved in the women's rights movement of the time. Have you ever heard of something called the Seneca Falls Convention, Greg? Uh, no. It is one of the seminal moments in American suffrage history because it's where the Declaration of Sentiments was presented on July 19th and 20th of 1848, written by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who actually also went to school with Eunice at that same seminary institution for higher learning for women. And it demanded equal legal rights and rights in society for women. Was Eunice at the Seneca Falls Convention then? Was she ever. It was signed by both Eunice and Elisha Foote. She's actually the fifth person to sign this incredibly important document in the history of women's rights in America. And Eunice was also one of the secretaries for this meeting. So she's taking down notes about what's happening at this moment where we really consider the turn of women's rights in America. But this is where I want to mention that our story so far is incredibly white. (laughs) 
<laughs> because in the history of our climate change understanding and our history of this women's rights movement, one of the things we talk about with the Declaration of Sentiments in the Seneca Falls Convention is that it was about rights for white women, right? White women got the right to vote way before any other woman of color in America. And it's an important moment where we need to reflect on the fact that our history of climate understanding is not exclusively white. Because like, look at how Eunice was completely forgotten by history and by science. And she was a relatively wealthy white woman with a lot of resources at her disposal and a husband who basically let her do whatever she wanted. And she had a pen pal in the head of the Smithsonian. You know, just a little casual sprinkling of privilege in there. So we have to remember that there's always these other characters who we're not hearing about, who are sort of hidden by the shadows of racism of the time and also to a certain extent, the racist lens that we have on history because of who wrote it. Yeah. One example that I just want to bring up is that when we're talking about our understanding of climate change historically, Aboriginal communities across Australia have some of the oldest and most intact oral histories in the world, going back thousands of years. And their myths and legends, quote unquote, actually chronicle really accurately periods of climate change on that continent, including like extreme sea level rise. Wow. And when white colonizers arrived and heard those stories, they were like, ah, yes, Aboriginal primitive magic and myths. When in fact, now we look at that and we say, holy crap, this could have told us so much about how things change. Yeah, it's anything but primitive to be able to maintain history through decades, centuries, millennia, through voice, through story, which is why they were often put into those myths and legends, as you say. And that can actually tell so much, almost in parallel to the fossil record, right? You've got the fossil record recording in one way, and then you've got the oral history, the spoken word record in stories. I remember hearing similar things about, you know, Halley's Comet and how you can piece together those stories to actually give you great data as to yes, when those things happen. Exactly. We need this enriching supplementary information. And just because it isn't Western white science doesn't mean it's not valuable, doesn't mean it's not knowledge that can contribute to our understanding of our world. And the same thing goes for the development of meteorology, right? Eunice is involved in that with her electrical work in gases. And in her era is when people start measuring the weather at different places and then communicating that weather to each other because we have the telegram. So in the Smithsonian, there was this almost interactive map where people all over the US could telegram in the weather in Florida or in Montana and viewers would come see this map and it was just mind-blowing to be able to see the weather in a different place in the United States. Wow. And it's funny because we look back and we're like, well, that would have been the weather quite a long time ago. How long did a telegram take to come? <laughs> but, but yeah, that ability to look wide, you know, and see everything, the context from all the way across the country and potentially the world would have been super cool. And a lot of that work was done by women. Basically, there were people all over the country who would send in through this amazing, whizzy new technology of the electric telegraph. They'd send in their data. And I think they were mainly men, but I don't know. I know in the UK, this equivalent one, they were mainly men because they were seen as trusted to collect data. Although I'm sure some of them got their wives to do it. Um, but they'd send in their data. And then in the Smithsonian, they would crunch that data and collect it together and file it away and put it on their map in, in the museum. And a lot of the, the work of that was done by women. And that's, it's a bit like the hidden figure story about the story of the history of NASA. There's all these people who do scientific work that aren't remembered because they're not seen as the important ones, but actually they're vital to it. It's just their kind of work it's not decided is important enough. And it's partly because their kind of work is the work that's done by women or in the story of hidden figures, people of color as well. You know, people like in hidden figures, they were called computers before we had computers, the, the human computers who did all the, the sort of treatment of weather data 
which if we didn't have, we wouldn't be able to see that global warming is happening. So I wanted to bring that up because it's all of the minute data, all of the people whose names we will never remember and have never been written down that have given us the understanding of change over time. Yeah, we've mentioned the computers before, um, these, you know, swathes of, of women, you know, each an incredibly skilled individual in their own right, all clumped together into this phrase computers, which is a bit of a bit of a pity. And yeah, the power, it, it, quite literally the processing power, data collection power that we should nod to. And it's totally essential. And because at the end of these stories, I'm always left wondering, okay, we've uncovered one person, but who else is getting left out of these stories? So Mm. I like to acknowledge that a little bit at the end. And to bring it all the way back to today, I asked Diana Liverman, who is a climate scientist herself, why it matters that we remember women who contributed to our current understanding of climate change or why it matters that diverse voices are heard today. And she has been conducting a long running survey looking at gender balance in the IPCC, right? Arguably one of the most important climate change organizations today. And things have changed hugely for the better. When they started collecting data in 1990, IPCC authors were 5% female. And the most recent assessment puts that at 20%. So it's an improvement. Yeah, yeah. If you can demonstrate that the lack of women climate scientists in these very high levels of science is because of histories of discrimination, then you are omitting very important scientific voices. You're omitting part of the science. It's not about gender, it's that you've systematically excluded some really brilliant scientists who might help us understand what's going on. Yeah, I mean, you excluded because there's just no record of Eunice's original publication, right? So that was lost. Think of all the other woman scientists whose work was not published or those who never got the opportunity to do it in the first place. Exactly what I was thinking, yeah. And Alice really brings it home for us here. And particularly when it comes to climate change, that is incredibly vital because climate change has so many areas in which it overlaps with so many other issues, particularly when it comes to inequality. So we know that climate change is basically the the more marginalised you are in the world, climate change is going to hit you more. If that's to do with gender or where you live or race or economics, all sorts of different things. It's it's a it's an inequality multiplier, is climate change. And so particularly climate change, but I think this is true of any area of science, is really important to have diverse perspectives. And so we'll do better science if we have diverse perspectives. And that is always what I say when I am confronted with the question, why does it matter? Why does being a woman matter? Why does being a person of color matter? Why does being LGBTQ matter? Why are you bringing that identity into the workplace? And it's because we live in a world full of identities. Science works in a world full of identities. So you cannot discount identity when doing science either because it's gonna impact all of us. And in the communication of science, we need to see that people from all sorts of spectrums were involved in doing science and amazing science because you cannot be what you cannot see. So true, and histories of discrimination need to be taken into account so that today we can try to fix that and gain more balance and have science reflect the world that it acts upon and within. So I have loved uncovering Eunice's story. I think it's super important, but it's not just her. It's about a lot of things that are a lot bigger. So I'm glad we got to talk about that today. Yeah, thanks. I'm still blown away that, you know, her story was essentially unknown until Roy just happened to read about it. The chance involved there, Greg. Just pure luck that this (laughs) retired oil executive, ironically enough, wanted to know more about it and said, hey, look at that name. 
That's weird. Cheers, Myron. Thanks so much for listening, Greg. And thank you so much again to our experts, John Perlin, Alice Bell, and Diana Liverman. They were so fantastic to talk to. And if you want to know more about them, their work, and organizations they're affiliated with, as well as the sources that I used to put this episode together, you can find those in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, It does mean a lot. So if you can go and, yeah, click a little number of stars there. Five's a great number. Uh, And leave us a review. That'd be ace. Thanks. Please do spread the word about Surprisingly Brilliant. Recommend it to your friends. Share it with anybody who you think may enjoy it. And there are more episodes on their way. So subscribe to catch them. And if you've got a story from science history that you'd like us to tell or a discovery or an invention you'd like to know the story behind, you can email us brilliant at seeker.com. If you want to get in touch on social, sitting across the table from me is Greg Foote. He is at Greg Foote on Twitter and Instagram. And Marin Hunsberger is at Marin Hunsberger on Twitter, at Marin B on Instagram. Surprisingly Brilliant is a podcast from Seeker. This episode was written by me, Marin Hunsberger, and my co-host is Greg Foote. Our amazing producer was Katarina Kropshofer, and this episode was edited by Lucas Bollinger. We had support from the team at Seeker, including Caroline Roth, Jessica Young, Megan Bates, and Megan Fu, and from the Group 9 podcast team, including supervising producer Emily Feld. The show's executive producer are me, Greg, Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner, and Mangish Hadakadur. And you can find out more about Seeker at Seeker.com. We'll chat to you next time. Bye. See ya.